This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books and Psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Stephen Dozman. Engaging with one's patients is one of the most complicated aspects of being a psychoanalyst, going well beyond simply processing information and spitting out a ready-made answer for them. It involves learning how to listen, slowly teasing out insights, speaking not only the right words, but with the right tone, creating an environment where a trusting relationship can be fostered. While much of this comes with time and experience, much can be learned by thinking critically about the mechanics that go into good analytic practice. Here to discuss some of these is my guest today, Mark Winburn, here to discuss his recent book, Interpretation and Union Analysis, Art and Technique, published by Routledge in 2019. Placing interpretation at the center of the practice, Winburn develops the creative and expressive elements of analysis, the importance of being attentive to language, the ways metaphors can be used to engage at a deeper level, and how a connection can be forged between an analyst and analyzand. Clearly written and filled with lots of useful examples, the book will be of interest not only to analysts looking to better understand their craft, but to anyone interested in learning how to make better sense of oneself. Mark Winburn is a Jungian psychoanalyst and clinical psychologist. He is a training analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute in Zurich, Switzerland, and also sits on the editorial board for both the Journal of Analytical Psychology and the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, and is also the author of Deep Blues, Human Soundscapes for the Archetypal Journey and Shared Realities, Participation Mystique, and Beyond. He maintains a private practice in Memphis, Tennessee. So, Mark Winburn, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you, Stephen. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, so we always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning. So could you maybe tell us a bit about your background and what your work tends to focus on? Sure. I've been a practicing psychologist for 33 years and a Jungian analyst for 20 years. And um, over the years, I've developed kind of a specialization in what we would refer to as comparative psychoanalysis, which is trying to understand the relationships between various schools of psychoanalytic thought. I also have a deep interest in the clinical process, which is what this book comes out of, and an ongoing interest in aesthetic experience, both within the analytic setting and outside the analytic setting. So those are some of my main uh, things that I'm interested in. I'm currently working, uh, editing a book for a uh, Romanian colleague, Lavinia Translescu, who's done a series of interviews and will be publishing that with Routledge sometime in 2021. 
And then after that, I'll have a new book uh, down the road uh, within the next couple of years uh, called Cultivating the Analytic Attitude. Wonderful. So to kick things off, one thing you emphasize that separates Jungian thought from some other psychoanalytic schools is the lack of emphasis on a particular analytic technique. So those often studying analysis will kind of learn a particular sort of approach to how to engage um, with their analysands, whereas Jungian analysts are unlikely to receive much training in these areas. On top of this, you point out that the Jungian literature on the topics you address consists mostly of scattered articles and essays. So to kick things off, can you give listeners a sense of where this lack of concern for developing a proper technique might come from? Sure. Um, I wouldn't characterize it as a lack of concern as much as a different philosophy, which in general has led to certain influences on the training of Jungian analysis. So Jung's personality was an introverted feeling uh, intuitive. And he felt that the way an analyst practice should reflect the idiosyncrasies of their unique personality, which is true, I think, uh, and that every analyst, Jungian or otherwise, cannot help but have their approach to analysis shaped by their personality. Um, A couple of analysts named George Atwood and Robert Stollerow wrote a book called Faces in the Cloud, in a Cloud. And it's really an interesting series of chapters that examines how the personalities of these founding fathers and mothers of psychoanalysis are really uh, embedded in the theories that they developed. So they go into Sigmund Freud, Alfred Adler, Carl Jung, Donald Winnicott, Melanie Klein, and really look at the the biographical histories of these individuals and then identify how those biographies come into their theories. So I think that's a given. Uh, and But Jung's perspective that the personality should lead the analysis, not a method, was really shared by the personalities, the analysts that gathered around him in the early years. And people who are introverted, feeling, intuitive types tend to be somewhat averse to methodology or standard practices. But what I believe is that that these are approaches to doing analysis, particularly interpretation, that are simply more effective, but yet don't obscure this idiosyncratic influence of the analyst personality. That's going to come through anyway. I contend these are just better ways of doing things. Yeah, so jumping off of that, um, I imagine many people might look at this situation you describe and simply say, so what? Why do we need technique? Um, And you offer a response to this question by writing, quote, many patients presenting for therapy or analysis are not initially well-suited for a classical Jungian or archetypally focused analysis. Such a situation arises with patients who arrive for therapy not yet functioning at a symbolic level and still needing to address areas of immature psychological developments, deficits in identity and self-structure, or experiencing difficulty with affective behavioral regulation, end quote. So can you unpack or explain the situation of a patient who comes in unprepared for what we might call proper Jungian analysis, 
and how technique can help get a patient to the level you need them to be in order to really start digging into the process. Yeah. Um, the issue is that proper Jungian analysis, or we might say Jungian analysis done from a classical Jungian perspective, as Jung might have done it, Maria Luisa von Franz and some of these other earlier followers, it implicitly assumes an inherent capacity for processing symbolic material. So therefore, dream work is often introduced almost immediately, which means asking the patient to recall dreams and assuming the patient can participate in a meaningful and symbolic way in analyzing those dreams. Or the introduction of a technique called active imagination, which was Jung's uh, terminology and method for uh, what he called uh, dreaming while awake. And it simply means entering into kind of a relaxed meditative state and allowing an a scene to come up, often beginning with uh, an element of a dream, perhaps, that didn't finish. But some patients are simply unable to do the, either of these things or will comply but don't derive any benefit from it. That's the problem. But analytical psychology and psychoanalysis originated at a time in Europe when many people spoke multiple languages were often well-versed in the classical literature of ancient Greece and Rome. They grew up hearing Grimm's fairy tales and Aesop's fables. These influences alone shape what a person is able to process symbolically and imaginatively. While our technological sophistication has improved dramatically, our symbolic imaginative, our symbolic imaginative lives have become more impoverished, more concrete, very extroverted, often not able to reflect on experience, not used to thinking metaphorically, and often having structural deficits in terms of their ability to regulate or moderate their own emotions. So in working with individuals who come to analysis without the necessary capacity to interact with me and their own material symbolically, I attempt to develop these capacities, often by pointing out links, patterns, interrelationships between experiences, feelings, and memories that they are describing, but which they don't likely see themselves. I'll often wonder aloud. For example, I'll, I'll point out things framed as questions. Have you ever noticed that when you talk about this particular thing, you often begin to get anxious. So it's a way of helping them ease into a process that begins to cultivate this capacity for reflection, begins to generate a, an attitude towards what's going on inside that in some way is related to but independent of what's going on outside. This is the, the main thing that I think most people who come to analysis struggle with, is finding a meaningful correlation between what's happening in the world around them and their reactions internally. I think that's probably enough uh, on that. Yeah, I think you set that up really well. Um, 
So working our way into your own account of interpretation, metaphor comes up as a key element of the therapeutic process, since patients will often use metaphors to unpack their situation. Um, But for you, rather than simply getting past the metaphor, you often try and work with it, developing it in various ways and creating a sort of poetic dialogue. So can you explain how you see metaphor working here and how you try how you try to integrate it into the therapeutic process? Yeah, um, metaphors really become an important part of what I do. And while it was there at the beginning, it's grown and grown over the years of practice. And I've really come to see metaphor as the central mechanism by which uh, analytic therapy progresses. So I relied on a, a lot of research on metaphor from the neurosciences, cognitive sciences, and philosophy to develop a deeper understanding, particularly the work of Philip Davis, uh, who's actually a Shakespearean scholar, uh, Mark Johnson, George Lockoff, and Mark Turner, who are cognitive scientist philosophers. And they all do research, have done research, which confirms that we use metaphor constantly all of the time to process our experience, both our somatic experience and our emotional experiences because these things don't often have uh, rational explanations, we rely on metaphor to find a way to communicate them. And it occurs spontaneously. You know, when somebody says, my head's about to explode, they're creating a metaphor. When they say, my back is against a wall, they're utilizing a metaphor. And our patients do this all of the time if we have an ear to listen for it. In fact, we're walking around doing metaphor. It's almost hard. You can't get through a day without engaging in metaphor, but we don't often recognize it. Advertising relies on metaphor all of the time to convince us that we need something that we didn't even think we needed. So they're cultivating desire through metaphor in a very strategic way. So let me give you one example of some research that Phil Davis did at University of Liverpool, which was completely fascinating. Even though he's a Shakespearean scholar, he wanted to understand why has Shakespeare's words had such an enduring, uh, powerful effect on Western culture. And so he went to the neuroscience department at the medical school there and said, hey, could we do some collaborative research? And what they ended up doing is they got some volunteers to read passages from ordinary prose, like articles from magazines and newspapers, which are typically not framed in metaphorical terms, and then to read passages from Shakespeare. And they did this while they were in a functional MRI machine, so they could tell what was happening in the brain. And the brain when it's relying, reading ordinary prose is completely responding differently to the material than when it reads Shakespeare. And Shakespeare relies heavily on metaphor in his writing. And so the way Phil Davis says it kind of colloquially is he says, metaphor is like a rocket booster for the brain. It lights up like a Christmas tree. 
So that tells us that we are actually optimized to receive, process, and communicate most deeply through metaphor. So the way this comes back to the Jungian world is Jungians study myths, fairy tales, religious systems, and alchemy as a very integral part of their training. But it's tied to the idea of archetypes and the collective unconscious. While those things might be true, there's some discussion going on right now. The concept of archetype and collective unconscious is really being reevaluated in a significant way by contemporary union analysts. Uh, but what I contend is that these things are not important or not solely important because they're archetypes or come from the collective unconscious. They're important because they're metaphors. And all metaphors help us process and express and contextualize ourselves within our experience. I think I'll stop there. Yeah, so to get closer to your account of interpretation, you outline a four-step interpretive cycle composed of confrontation, clarification, interpretation, and then construction. So just to break things down a bit, let's start with the first two, confrontational observation and inferential clarification, where you as an analyst take note of and address a particular behavior you notice your patient exhibiting and then trying to connect it to some potential subconscious processes. So can you explain this part of the cycle and how it's meant to function as a sort of staging ground for deeper interpretation? Sure. I think of these as like Lego blocks. You know, you can't do much with a single Lego block, but you get a couple of dozen Lego blocks and put them together. You can make a car, you can make a house, you can make an airplane, all sorts of different things. So the idea of interpretation itself is often intimidating initially for the, for the analyst in training. Like, how do I make one of those? What, what should it include? And these Lego blocks are kind of ways of laying the groundwork. So a confrontational observation is simply drawing the patient's attention to something. One example I like is, for example, let's say a woman who comes in and sits in the chair and places her purse on her lap in every single session, never sets it down. Now, initially I might just say, uh, have you ever noticed that you always keep your purse in your lap? I'm just asking her whether she has or hasn't noticed that. That would be a confrontational observation. Now, if I add something to that, a possible motivation for that behavior, I notice that you keep your purse in your lap in each session. I wonder if this is a way that you make yourself feel safer during our sessions. So that would be a inferential clarification because it's adding a possibility to the observation. It's not saying why that behavior is there. The why would be the content of the actual interpretation. You know, so let's say this hypothesized patient grew up in a household in which there weren't good boundaries and that the boundaries were frequently crossed. 
And let's say I wanted to make an interpretation that linked this, all three of these things, the observation, the inference, and the interpretation. Then I might say, I have a feeling that you keep your purse in your lap, which is a way of establishing a feeling of safety because it creates a kind of boundary between us, something in between us that serves as a buffer, perhaps in a way that relates to the way there wasn't many, there weren't many boundaries in your house growing up that the members of your family could cross your boundaries often and in ways that were painful to you. And you had to find some way of coping with that boundary crossing. Now that would be what I would consider a full interpretation, which links a behavior, a feeling, and a motivation underlying the behavior. Um, let's see. I think taking it in this stepwise fashion of not trying to do it all at once initially is kind of like tilling the soil. If we make some of these deeper interpretations right off the bat, we're not really respecting the patient's established ways of coping. These patterns are there for a reason. We call them defenses, but they're really coping strategies. And so if we don't give due respect to those coping strategies, we're kind of uh, being disrespectful to the patient's mode of being. It's also kind of a, this speaking aloud what the analyst is noticing and the hypotheses that the analyst is making is a way of revealing what's going on in the analyst's mind which in turn helps the patient develop their own capacity to reflect on their own experiences, to make their own linkages eventually. Then, of course, there's the issue of timing. Sometimes things will occur to me to interpret that I don't think the patient is ready to hear. So sometimes that might be a couple of weeks from now. Sometimes it might be a couple of months. It's often that I'll hold interpretations in my mind or in my notes for a, up to a year and even put one instance in, that I talk about elsewhere uh, where I literally had to hold an interpretation about a behavior because I really didn't understand the behavior. It took me eight years to understand it. And I literally held but held this pattern of behavior in my mind until I felt like I had something useful to say about it. And then the, the last part of your question is the idea of construction. And this is just what emerges over time in an analysis. So everybody comes into analysis with some sort of personal narrative that they're living out of. Uh, you know, with one person I saw who became accomplished in their field and held graduate degrees and things like that, but they grew up what he called the wrong side of the tracks. And he had a lot of vestiges of growing up on the wrong side of his tracks that all, even though he was mm, in his early fifties, when I was seeing him, there was still an element that was still with him, still part of his personal myth, his personal narrative that often interfered with being able to engage fully in both his life and his career. So the construction is the kind of the new narrative or the new myth 
that emerges during the course of analysis when they were not changing the facts of what happened in their lives. Obviously, we can't rewrite history, but we can come to have a different perspective on those events. And that's ultimately what someone leaves with is a construction that has emerged out of the analysis, which is a new personal myth or a new guiding narrative so that they walk through the world and engage with themselves and their world in a new way. Yeah, so that kind of unpacks the whole um, cycle you're aiming for. Uh, The process you describe here for developing interpretations is very similar in ways to the scientific method with an initial gathering of data, forming a hypothesis, and then testing it out. Um, But I think this latter part would have to be very difficult since confirmation of the hypothesis often might be very indirect, such as when a patient snaps at you that you're wrong, but in a way that suggests you struck an emotional nerve or something of that nature. So can you maybe explain the testing phase regarding how to interpret the results and how to adjust your hypothesis or method accordingly here? Yeah, one of the analogies I use for that is like you throw a stone into a still pond and then you watch the ripples emerge out from the entry point. And so the interpretation is the stone that's being thrown into the pond. And I'm listening, watching, looking for, feeling for the ripples. So this might be a feeling of aha that emerges from the patient. I might notice a shift in their breathing, a shift in their bodily posture, a shift in their physiological states, for example, a reddening in the cheeks or the neck. I might feel a strong shift of feeling after delivering the interpretation. Often there with a a useful or effective interpretation, the patient will respond with new associations, meaning they'll say something like, oh, wow, that makes me think of this time when I was in junior high school, or this time when I went away to college, or this time when I was in the army. And you can tell by the content of the new association that it's related in some way to the interpretation that's just been offered. So those are the primary ways that I'm listening, watching, trying to feel into the response to the interpretation. Now, I'm also listening for the possibility that my interpretation is off, premature, overwhelming. So some of the uh, indicators for that is are, for example, if the patient just has a rote acceptance, oh, I see, yes. And there isn't really any affective attunement in their acceptance. Or if there's no shift at all in the emotion. Or if the patient just continues talking about what they had previously talked about, as though my thoughts that are expressed as the interpretation didn't alter their thoughts at all. They just continued on the same train of thought that they were previously on. I'd say those those are the most uh, salient things that I'm listening and watching for. And I wondered if uh, 
it might be useful rather than do a hypothesized uh, example of an interpretation, if I could give an actual uh, one from a session that's in the book. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, so this is a, a young man uh, who I call John, who I was seeing uh, in therapy. And towards the end of a session, we get into the issue of his mother. He's bemoaning the fact that he's recently received a letter from her and a check, a monetary check. And he's experiencing some anxiety and ambivalence about having to write her back. The previous session, he had made a comment about the level of anxiety she constellates in him and him mentioning the two beers he felt he needed to drink the previous week before he could return her call. So I reflect this back to him. I say, oh, that's kind of like you when you had to drink the two beers last week before you could return her call. And he says, oh, you remembered. I say, you seem surprised that I remembered. Now, if I was just doing supportive therapy, I could have said something like, well, yes, naturally I remember, but that was a significant thing. Now, John would have felt seen, heard, uh, remembered, and those would all be valuable things for him. Uh, but I chose to continue because th while those would have been useful emotional experiences, for him, they wouldn't have helped him understand anything about himself. So John continues, I didn't mean any offense. I just meant that none of my therapists before have ever remembered what I've said from week to week, which immediately made me tremendously sad. I say, I didn't think you were making a derogatory comment about me. He says, good, because I wasn't. This therapy is really important to me. Now I begin an interpretation. I think you were telling me that you don't feel memorable, so it surprises you that I could hold you in my mind. He grins somewhat sheepishly as though he's been caught doing something. He says, well, I know you see a lot of patients and it must be hard to keep all this stuff straight. I say, you seem to be wondering whether you're important enough to me for me to remember you as an individual among the other people who come into my office. John immediately becomes tearful, says, I know I'm important to you, and it's really important that I stay with this and finish therapy this time. I've gotten started and quit so many times, I can't do that again. So hopefully you can hear from that exchange that now I've given him some information about his own experience, not what I'm doing with him, but this idea that he doesn't feel memorable. So he's caught by surprise that I would remember. That's the interpretive piece that would have been left out if I had merely stayed with a supportive acknowledgement of remembering him. Yeah, so turning to the analytic attitude, you outline a few key elements to your approach. But one thread I noticed that seemed to be in play throughout this particular chapter is that a Jungian approach... Um, stands in stark contrast to certain uh, elements of what I've read about in maybe like Freudian thought. Um, so there's, for example, his emphasis on psychic reality and metaphor or narrative, um, skepticism of an overly deterministic biology, and encouraging the analyst to be a bit more 
emotionally involved, as you've been discussing in the process, rather than emotionally detached, as Freud at times encouraged. Um, So can you give us a sense of what you develop here and how it sets a Jungian approach, or maybe just your approach apart? No, I, I think it is certainly a Jungian approach, and Jung was a pioneer in this area. He felt deeply and states numerous times that the analyst must also be involved and impacted by the process of analysis. Shaped, changed, challenged, deepened. Now, he's not talking about sharing a lot of intimate details about one's life with one's patients. He's talking about being present emotionally, not being the distant observer distant, detached observer that Freud has kind of been character, uh, characterized as at times. And I think there was some truth to that, particularly as psychoanalysis developed in the United States from the 1920s through the 19, early 1970s. That was really, uh, that caricature was actually fairly accurate in many areas. Uh, but there were other early collaborators of Freud, particularly Sandor Ferenczi, who also advocated along similar lines. Jung described it as uh, the idea that there must be some sort of chemical reaction between analyst and patient for there something to be truly transformative to happen. And you can't do that if you're trying to hold yourself out emotionally from the session and just make observations. You have to use your own experience. So I think this is deeply connected to Jung's uh, perspective, but it's really come into play in contemporary psychoanalytic circles as well, uh, particularly the relational and intersubjective schools of thought, which both uh, point to Heinz Kohut's self-psychology as an important contributor to this shift away from this old perspective or old caricature of the analyst as objective but distant. And I don't, I don't really know personally any of my colleagues uh, in the field who still believe in that old perspective. So one thing that comes up at several points in the book and that helps set um, Jung's approach to analysis apart from others is his theory of complexes, which you describe as a sort of fragmented psyche within our psyche that can exert various sorts of pressures from within. Although even that description you make clear doesn't do it justice since it seems to isolate them, whereas in reality they they have this way of kind of scattering themselves throughout our inner or emotional life. So can you explain what a complex is and how analysts are supposed to engage with them? Well, one of the metaphors that's used to talk about uh, complexes is the idea of a solar system. So in the solar system, the sun's the center of the solar system. Our sun is. And Jung would say uh, the deeper self or the transcendent self is the center of the solar system. But around those, uh, that sun are all of these orbiting planets the ego complex, which is our, the center of our, uh, conscious identity. Um, he would say there's other complexes, what he termed the anima and animus, the mother complex, the father complex, the child complex. 
really what these are is a kind of grouping of feelings, memory, memories, bodily states, defensive patterns, cognitive sets around a particular person or theme. So it has a lot of similarities, actually, to British object relations theory that came out of Melanie Klein, Donald Winnicott, Harry Guntrup, and Ronald Fairbairn. The, the difference is that uh, an object relations theorist wouldn't talk about, for example, a father complex, I mean, a, an authority complex, whereas uh, a Jungian might talk about an authority complex or a money complex, which is, just means, for example, a money complex would be that somebody has a particularly strongly constellated set of feelings and patterns of responses around money. So like you could the idea of depression era children who grew up always feeling being told that they needed to save. And then as adults perhaps had much more discretionary income, but then has still have trouble spending money on um, what they perceive as luxury items or items that are not necessary. So that person from a union perspective would have a money complex. Um, so the, these all operate in kind of a network, and the idea is to try to understand the, the, the relationship between the various complexes. So somebody who has a money complex, perhaps they received a lot of messages about money from their father. So they might internalize that as both around money, but it's also connected to how they've internalized father. So there's an overlap between the money complex and the father complex. Certainly all of us have had the experience of being children. We can't get to adulthood without being children. So in some way we've internalized uh, an image of ourselves as children and what we were like as children. And that continues to shape and uh, inform our present day feelings and decisions and behaviors. So naturally, a child complex can't operate independently of a mother and father complex, even if the mother or father weren't present in the household. They, that the uh, innate assumption that we kind of come out of the womb, that we're going to encounter these two beings, a mother and a father, is you could say is instinctual. Jungians might call it archetypal. But in one way or another, we anticipate the, the discovery of these two beings. Um, so to talk about uh, how one of these, how I might speak differently, depending on which complex I'm activated to, I think one pattern that a lot of new analysts fall into is they're kind of speaking to the ego complex, in a sense, the logical, rational uh, conscious part of ourselves, and often speaking in rational, logical terms. The problem is that those terms don't aren't often evocative to the other part of the psyche that needs to be engaged and worked with. So let's take, for example, somebody who uh, has kind of a sense of narcissistic omnipotence about their lives, and they have the feeling that they should receive everything they want or desire. 
So rather than trying to logically uh, discuss the impossibility of that, I might try to empathize initially and then introduce a new perspective and try to speak to the consequences of that perspective in emotional terms. So here, here's an example I might give. I know it feels as if you should have everything you want and we're led to believe that was possible. But unfortunately, we live in a world in which there are limits. You find that frustrating, and the way you express your frustration is driving everyone away, leaving you feeling alone and with nothing. So there I'm really trying to speak directly to this child omnipotence that hasn't really grown up yet and trying to introduce a tolerable degree of awareness of the way the world actually works. So another key element of Jungian theory is the archetype, and you bring up what you call archetypal amplification, a way of trying to connect individual patterns of behavior to a much broader horizon of experiences so as to help open up the patient to a broader spectrum of potential emotional experience. So can you explain this process a bit? Sure. Um, In in traditional Jungian therapy, it often involves bringing an archetypal uh, interpretation is usually grounded in some sort of pattern from uh, a myth, a fairy tale, a religious motif, or some pattern from alchemy. So, you know, like the old Greek myth of Sisyphus, who's punished for his hubris by being condemned to forever push a stone up a hill, only to have it roll back down again, and him having to start over again the next day. Now, there's all sorts of applications to that myth, in the experiences of everyday life, the grind of the nine to five or the eight to five uh, job and feeling like it's the same thing over and over again. The idea is to ground one's individual experiences in a broader narrative, in a sense to help the person see, oh, I'm not the only one experiencing this. This is the thing, this has been being experienced for thousands of years. And that adds something. It expands the vision of the patient, it makes them feel not quite so alone, and it provides a deeper sense of meaning, often to situations that feel meaningless without that context. So, like a, an interesting uh, contemporary example of this that's not from analysis, it's from. Uh, the area of theater. There's a group called Theater of War, and they take actors. They started off doing this on military bases, and they take actors who do dramatic readings of classic Greek tragedies, often around warfare. And when these plays that are thousands of years old are read aloud to these military families, both active duty soldiers and their families, 
there's often a great deal of resonance where people can hear uh, these, the, the, the longing for their loved one, the grief for the loved one who doesn't come home, the nightmares that the soldiers in ancient Greece suffered when they would come home from war and were uh, essentially what we're talking about is post-traumatic stress disorder. And when people can see these things coming alive in the theater, in these dramatic readings, then they can relate their own lives to these broader themes. And they've, they've actually gone now beyond theaters of war to uh, other contemporary issues such as stigmas, uh, loss of empathy, development of compassion, the capacity to approach deeper issues. So I'm sure they're going to have uh, things that are emerging around uh, the Black Lives Matter and the racial issues, immigration issues, things like that. It's really a fascinating uh, project that uh, I think really illustrates well what Jung was onto when he uh, developed, when he emphasized the importance of these archetypal themes to individual therapy. You turn to the concept of reverie, which you describe as being a sort of calm emotional attentiveness. Particularly important to this idea is the way reverie works with the relationship between the analyst and patient, since it almost seems to function as a sort of condition of possibility for deepening the connection between the two. So can you unpack reverie's function in the therapeutic process? Yeah. Um, in in the, one of the other books you mentioned, Shared Realities, I, I talk about this at uh, greater length. And I use the analogy of watching the clouds together. So most of us have had the experience of, as children, of lying on our backs on the grass on a summer day, or perhaps on the concrete, if you lived it, grew up in a city, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, and watching the clouds, and there's no particular purpose, right? You're not going to do anything with it, but it fosters a sense of being together letting our imaginations wander as we try to see something in the clouds, which naturally are ambiguous and don't often have a particular form, but our minds kind of give form to them in some ways to the shapes that are already there. So I think what it does is it increases a receptivity for unconscious to unconscious communication. In other words, that the patient and the analyst are communicating outside their conscious awareness. What happens often is that there are greater experiences of synchronicity. For example, a patient will come in and say, oh, I was reading this poet today or this morning or yesterday. And I might say, oh, that's interesting. I was having a thought about that very poet this morning. And we'll often find that somehow our emotional and cognitive uh, wavelength was aligned in some way. But it, it really, I think what it does is it gives a felt sense of entering into a shared state. That's not always possible. Reverie can be a one-person thing. We can certainly watch the clouds alone and muse in the same way. The analyst can 
be in reverie while the patient is not, but the deepest experiences are when the analyst and the patient both have the capacity to enter into kind of this floating dreamlike state in which they're able to speak from those states in a way that might pertain to the issues that the patient brings into analysis. Yeah, building off of that, and to connect reverie back to some earlier themes, one thing you note is that when one is in a state of reverie, one may be more open than usual to metaphor, since it involves a surrender of yourself to something a bit more ambiguous, but also much more emotionally, uh, much emotionally deeper. So following up with a much earlier question about patients who come to therapy not entirely ready to go deeper in their treatment. How should analysts try and encourage and facilitate a deeper capacity for reverie? Well, um, it's not something that we do overtly. So it's not a skill that we teach and say, well, why don't you try doing this? It's really something that we model. So it starts by just leaving space, not responding immediately to the last thing the patient said, to kind of muse about it in their presence. So sometimes there are many patients that don't feel comfortable with silence. Uh, and so you, I might notice that they're getting visibly antsy or anxious as I'm remaining silent. Now, I'm not silent for minutes at a time, it might, but it might be 30 seconds as I'm reflecting on what they've said and what I'm feeling in response to it. Sometimes they might ask, what, do you, what are you thinking about? And I might share a little bit about what I'm thinking about and see how they respond to that. Or, and then I might say, it seemed as though my silence was making you anxious, and we might delve into that. So there's nothing really in particular I'm going to say, uh, okay, reverie's important, let's do some reverie now. It's more something I model and that I kind of try to leave openings for them to participate with me in that. Sometimes I do do something more overtly and say, well, what if you were to imagine blank? Or I might say, if you closed your eyes and tried to let something come up, what do you imagine it would be? And then they might close their eyes and they might actually see what comes up. So it's kind of like giving permission in a sense to go into this state rather than encouraging someone or teaching someone. It's actually a a state that we naturally want and need. In the neurosciences, it's called the task... the default mode network, which we actually need to replenish our creative capacities uh, to have this non-directed state as opposed to another mode of operation that they call the task-specific mode when we're thinking about what what do I need to get at the grocery store. And so it's, it's actually there both as a psychoanalytic concept, but the support for it's also there in the neurosciences. Turning to confrontation, you connect it with Jung's idea of syzygy or the tension of opposites. 
as a way of unpacking how analysts need to not only create a relationship between themselves and their patients, but also how they often have to work to create a balance within themselves in order to respond to a greater spectrum of their patients' needs. So can you unpack Jungian syzygy and what analysts should take from it in their own practice? Sure. Um, Syzygy is simply Jung's term for uh, the tension of opposites, which is really foundational to Jungian analysis. So it comes out in the idea of the mother and father complexes are, are the, what's referred to as the parental syzygy. The onaman animus uh, are a syzygy. And it, it's one of the most fundamental aspects of practice. I'm always listening, watching for the tension of opposites that might be emerging or where a tension of opposites is missing, where the, the attitude of the patient has become too one-sided good and bad. You know, I'll, I'll, that's a common one. I'll say, it seems like you can only think about experiences as either being good or bad, and that there aren't any other possibilities for thinking about experiences. I might be looking for ideas about hard and soft, masculine and feminine, passive and active, receptive and penetrating. And so I'll try, when somebody's only speaking about one side of something, I'll try to highlight the absence of the other side. Sometimes it will be something like, you know, I notice we really only talk about your mother. I wonder what's happening with your father. Or I might say, uh, thinking about sense of self-agency, I might say something like, you know, it seems like you always feel like something is happening to you. And it seems like a sense that you're influencing what happens in your life is largely absent. That would be holding the tension of opposites from a Jungian perspective. Um, ultimately, this activates what Jung conceptualized as the transcendent function, which is kind of an uh, heady but ambiguous term for something in the psyche that he would say originates from the self, which generates a new perspective or a new transcendent third. So a, a little example from uh, literature, a British author named Susan Howitch wrote a series of historical novels about the Church of England. And there's a priest named Darrow in this uh, novel. And one of his parishioners uh, comes in into him into his office one day and says, uh, "Father, where do you stand on the liberal conservative split in the church?" And he smiles and gently says, "Beyond it." So I think that's where where we're we're always trying to get to is holding the tension of opposites to get beyond the opposites to where a new experience is generated. In the final chapters, you mentioned at a few points the importance of remaining open and fluid to changes that happen throughout the analytic process. Um, and this is obviously important, but it suggests a possible issue we talked about near the beginning of the book, namely the lack of uh, some analysts not having a consistent methodology in Jungian analysis. So as a final question, how would you encourage analysts to integrate 
fluidity into their practice here in such a way that they don't lose the methodology you've been outlining, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Yeah, I think that's one of those tension of opposites things right there, that somehow the idea is that we can either be our idiosyncratic selves, but then we can't use a methodology, or we can use a methodology, but be somehow a cookie cutter. And that's a tension of opposites that's not really necessary. Um, you can say those are opposites, but an, an, an artificial dichotomy. So as I mentioned in the book, this is really about shifting from seeing these methods as something being uh, as a prescribed way of doing things towards a more artistic perspective, where the methods of interpretation are seen as creative tools that actually give us more freedom to interact in a more creative, poetic, soulful fashion, which I would hope that all analysts would want to do. And the, the analogy I draw is jazz musicians in particular, as well as almost any other artist. You know, they spend hundreds of hours practicing scales, learning chord theory, mastering the technical aspects of their instrument, practicing improvising, learning all the standard songs of the jazz catalog, which is building up a musical vocabulary to draw from. But those hundreds of hours, the effect of that then makes its appearance on stage when somebody is on stage and they play a novel combination of notes that makes a musical statement. And then the musician standing next to them makes a completely new and novel statement in response. And the musicians go back and forth improvising because they have this fluidity of technique and theory behind them. It's that in deep integration of all of those methodological issues that makes that improvisation possible. So there's no one right way to do things, but there's many bad ways of doing things. I'm just trying to help people avoid reinventing the, or rediscovering the wheel. Yeah, that's an excellent note to end on. So as a final question, what, if anything, are you working on now? Um, I think I mentioned it a little bit at the beginning of uh, the hour. Our, our, my next book will be a co-edited book with a Romanian colleague who's done a series of interviews with prominent Jungian analysts that are in the latter parts of their career. And she's getting their reflections on how their early lives influenced their choice to become an analyst and how it impacts their being an analyst. So we've got about um, 20 interviews with these prominent analysts, and I'm doing the editing with her on the book, and that will come out sometime in 2021, we believe, with Routledge. Uh, and then my next larger project is a book that ex takes one of the chapters from the interpretation book, which is Cultivating the Analytic Attitude. And really, that's a very broad subject, and that will eventually become a book itself probably around 2022 or 2023. So those are the two next big things. And then I continue with my uh, other smaller writing projects and my teaching and presenting. Excellent. So 
we're at the end of our hour. So Mark Winburn, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Stephen. I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate the opportunity to kind of stretch out with some of these answers and uh, give a fuller explanation than I might have in other venues sometimes. Yeah, absolutely.